We're going to be in chapter 12, looking at verses 28 through 34. Um, Again, that is uh, Mark 12, 28 through 34. Obviously, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And this morning, we come to another round of question and answer with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this time, he will be answering this question. What is the most important commandment? Now, it's, it's still Passion Week in Mark's narrative. <clears throat> it's still Tuesday of that week. Jesus is still in the temple, and he continues to be questioned by the various groups that represent the Sanhedrin. Uh, you'll remember that the Sanhedrin was the highest ruling, or rather the highest Jewish ruling body in Israel. And today in the temple, it will be one of the scribes, that, a, a man from that group, the lawyers, uh, who approaches Jesus. Now, there's a parallel to this passage in Mark 12, found in Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew's parallel, uh, Matthew tells us that this man is a Pharisee. This man is part of their group. And he is a scribe. He's a lawyer. So that means he is an expert in the Old Testament law, more so than than, than others. But this scribe is different from the the rest of them, it seems. Uh, It seems that looking at the parallel in Matthew, that his question begins, as a, uh, begins like the rest. It's meant to be a test of the Lord Jesus. The question we're going to read in our, in our text is it was originally meant to be a test of Jesus' knowledge of the law. But it also seems that this scribe became more serious with Jesus by the end. Um, he seems to be genuinely speaking to Jesus and thinking about what our Lord says by the end of the discussion. And as I've said already, this discussion has to do with the law of God. What commandment is the greatest? The King James says, what is the first commandment? Right? Meaning, what is the chiefest commandment? What does God require of all mankind? What should we be concerned with the most? The, the, the question here is, is this. What does God demand of us? Now, the text before us is very simple, but it is also very powerful. Our Lord Jesus, the King of the kingdom of God, God in the flesh, is going to tell us what God demands of us. And in doing so, he's going to expose our sin. And he's going to expose our need for a Savior. He will expose our need for a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. He's going to expose our need for him. And he will also instruct those of us who trust in him in what true religion looks like. He'll tell us what we should be concerned with and how we should live. So this text, and and you've heard this if you study theology, this text is a classic law and gospel text. It's very simple, but it's also very powerful. This text is about the law and the gospel and how the law should drive us to Christ. And may God do so this morning. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truth. Our great God and Father, we come before you now in need of divine help so that we might understand, believe, and be changed by your word. Apart from your grace, we will not benefit from hearing your word. Apart from your grace, we will have no blessing at all. And so we ask that you would bless the word that was just read, and we ask that you would bless the preaching of it. Have mercy on us. Send your spirit upon us in a mighty way this morning so that we might be changed by your truth. And as our Lord Jesus tells us, your word is truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Our text begins with a scribe sent to Jesus to ask him a question. 
And as I've mentioned a little bit in the introduction, he doesn't seem very hostile in Mark's account. And, and, and maybe that's why he ended up answering Jesus well by the end. But this man came, at least in some measure, with hostility toward the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 and 35 tells us that this man came to question Jesus in order to test him. And Mark tells us that this man was impressed with how Jesus had answered the Sadducees. Right? I don't know if you guys, uh, I think I've made this clear. The Pharisees and Sadducees did not like each other. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, and they rejected the supernatural pretty much out of hand. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, believed in the supernatural, and used the entirety of the Old Testament. The Sadducees and Pharisees were rivals. So whenever this man sees Jesus really handling the Sadducees well, he's somewhat impressed. He agrees with what Jesus says about the resurrection. So taking this all together, Matthew's account and Mark's account, it seems that this man was willing to give Jesus credit for answering the Sadducees well, but was still devoted to the Pharisees and still wanted to test Jesus. And as the passage progresses, the man seems to soften more toward Jesus to actually listen. But the question the scribe asks is a good one. He asks, which commandment is the most important of all? This scribe is an expert in the Old Testament law. He knows his stuff, right? He's a, a scholar, very well respected in his day. Again, he's a scribe, and by scribal reckoning, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. I think I read somewhere it was one commandment for every letter in the Ten Commandments. I think that's what I read. But by scribal reckoning, there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And by the scribes and rabbis, some of, some of the commandments were considered weightier than others. There were heavier and lighter laws. There were greater and lesser matters of the law. Our Lord Jesus actually affirms that distinction. All laws should be obeyed, but there's some are more uh, greater principles than others. Uh, but it, but so, some of the laws of the Old Testament were considered by the scribes to be summary principles that encompassed the other commandments, and those commandments were to be given special attention. And so it was common rabbinical practice at the time to give summaries of the law in order to teach the laity what was most important for them to know and do. Teachers of the law would often debate over what laws were heavier, more important, and what laws were lighter, less important. But it seems that there was a lot of disagreement on this question amongst the rabbis. So this scribe is asking Jesus for his estimation of the law. What should we focus on? What's the most important stuff? What should we be chiefly concerned with? One commentator put it this way. He's asking Jesus to summarize the law of God in a nutshell. I think that's a good way of looking at this question. Now, this doesn't seem like much of a test, does it? Like, this doesn't seem like nearly as hostile as the rest of the questions Jesus has, has been asking. This seems genuine. And, and maybe in part it was. But again, Matthew tells us that it was a test. So let me explain this briefly. The scribes probably thought, so again, this is somewhat some conjecture, but since it was meant to be a test, the scribes probably thought that Jesus didn't believe the law of Moses. Now, why would they think that he doesn't believe the law of Moses? Well, because Jesus constantly was railing against the tradition of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees believed that their traditions ultimately came from Moses, even though they absolutely did not. And so they're hoping that Jesus gives some commandment that's not found in the Old Testament. What's the summary of the law? And then Jesus tells them something not found in the Old Testament scriptures. And in doing so, Jesus would show himself to be some kind of a heretic and discredit himself. I think that's probably what the test is meant to be. This guy doesn't believe in the law. Let's see what his summary of the law is. But there's also probably a bit of something genuine here from the scribe, I think. This is, this is personal. We can fight about it in the parking lot later. It's misguided, but it's genuine, I think. Remember, remember this scribe is a Pharisee. He's a hardcore legalist. right? He believes that he will be made right with God through his own obedience to the law. I think he's probably personally interested in the answer because he wants to try to measure himself against the law. Right? I know what I think about me, but let's see, according to Jesus' estimation, how well that I'm doing whenever it comes to obedience to the law. And, man, the Lord Jesus is going to give him a hard and high standard to live up to in his answer. In verses 29 and 30, our Lord begins to answer him. 
Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Maybe you didn't realize this, but Jesus begins his answer by quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. What he's doing here is he's, he's answering the question genuinely, but he's showing that he's not at odds with the Old Testament law, as the Pharisees are probably trying to prove. And the portion of Deuteronomy that Jesus quotes from is referred to as the Shema. Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel. Shema Yisrael. That's how it starts. And this, this, these two verses were recited in the morning and evening by all pious Jews. So clearly, our Lord is orthodox. Right? He clearly loves the law of God. And our Lord's answer is profound. It's profound. He tells us that the greatest commandment is that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now let's break this down a bit, as I'm sure you thought that I was going to. Let's break this down a bit so we can see what Jesus is getting at here. First, we are to love God. And to, to love in this sense is not a mere emotion. Rather, it is to love with the will, the choices, with obedience, with sacrificial love. It, it's an action, right? It's not merely a feeling. But it's certainly not without feeling, and I'll get to that more later. The word is love, after all. Right? You are to love God, and you're to love him with all your heart. In the Hebrew language, the, the heart is the seat of the will. The heart is the driving force behind the man. You're to love God with your will, with a self-conscious, deep conviction about loving him. He's to be the driving force of your whole life. Listen, not just your religious life but the driving force of your whole life. You love him with all your heart. He alone is to sit on the throne of your heart and rule over you. You're to love him with all your heart. And you're to love him with all your soul. This is the inner man, the immaterial part of human beings. Uh, some commentators think that this refers to the affections and emotions. You're to love God with all of your affection. He is to be your greatest desire. He is to be esteemed in your, in your estimation as the loveliest of all beings. He's lovely to you. You are to be in constant awe and wonder at him. Again, he has your affection. He has your desire. He has your emotions. You love him with your soul. And you are to love God with all your mind. This one gets forgotten a lot. What he has spoken in the scriptures you devote your thinking to him. Put it this way. He gets all of your brain power. He is to be what consumes your mind and all your thoughts. Your life's goal is to know what he is like and what he has commanded and what he has done and what he has promised and what he thinks and what he threatens and all the rest. That's your life's goal. Your desire is to know all that you can about him and his will and his ways. You want to know. You must love him with your mind. And finally, you are to love God with all your strength. Strength is the power of a man. You, your strength is what you do. Your actions. You love him with your actions. What kind of actions? You love him with your obedience to what he said. You take all of your abilities, all of your skills, all of your power, all of your might, and devote it to doing whatever pleases the Lord. You are to spend all your resources, all your energy, all your time on whatever he desires from you. And notice here in verse 30, the repetition of the word all. It's there for a reason. All, all, all. This highlights this is the whole man. That is to love God. Nothing's to be held back. And listen, I, I know that I just kind of broke down one thing at a time, but we're not supposed to focus too much on all the various aspects and, and, and hyper-emphasize them. Jesus' point here is that it's the whole man. The heart, soul, mind, and strength of a person means the entirety of the person, doesn't it? 
the will, the emotions, the choices, the obedience, the affections, the inner man, the thoughts, the studying, the deeds, the actions. What else is there? Everything. Can you see what our Lord is saying? He's saying that we are to love God with every fiber of our being, with everything that we've got, with all of who we are. Indeed, this is the great commandment. God demands that we love him with everything. No breaks every day of your life. Our greatest desire is to be to please him. His smile is to be our greatest reward. And the most detestable thing to us should be that we would do anything that would make him frown. God commands, let me put it this way. This, is, this, this was powerful thought for me. He demands that we be consumed with him. That we be fanatical about him. You ever met someone and you think, man, that person's a little bit too serious about religion. No, you're a little bit not serious enough about religion. You read the Puritans and think, man, they were kind of fanatical about their observance of the Lord's Day. No, they were trying to love the Lord with all that they had. God is telling us we are to be, put it this way, obsessed with him. You ever have an obsession, a hobby, maybe something you're really into? It's all you think about in your free time. It's what your heart drifts to. It's what you spend your money on. It's what, it's what you want. You want to talk about it all the time. You want to be around other people that are into that thing that you're obsessed with. God's saying, be obsessed with me. That's what I want. He doesn't just get your best. He gets everything. There are to be, according to this command, there are to be no reserves left for ourselves or anything else. He gets us in public and he gets us in private. He gets us in the church and he gets us in the world. Nothing is left out of this command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And note this. The command says love. I think sometimes Reformed people don't see that. This kind of love, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just the worst at this because I kind of am. It says love. Love implies obedience. But it doesn't, the text doesn't say, and you shall obey the Lord your God, does it? No? No, that's implied. But it says, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love him. God says we are to truly adore him. To see him as beautiful. To truly want to be near to him. We are to love him, to pursue him. We are to be in awe and wonder at who he is always. Again, I'm, I'm going to continue on. I want you to see what's being commanded. He is to be the most precious thing to us. And the thought of not having God or not being owned by God is to be the worst hell that we can think of. That I wouldn't know him would be worse than any of the punishments that he could lay on me physically. We are to love him. He is to be dearer to us than our own spouse. He is to be dearer to us than our own children. We should love him so much that we look up to heaven and say, God, take my children before you would take your presence from me. You're to love him because he is God. Because he is God. There's many things I could say about this verse, but I want you to see, I think this is the primary thing. Because there are none like him. As the scribe answered Jesus well, is what Jesus said. He answered well. He says, you've spoken truly that he is one and there is none beside him. You're to love God like this because there are none like him. Hear me. You love him like this because he's lovely. You love him like this because he is good. You love him like this because he is holy. R.C. Sproul put it this way. We are to love God for his own sake. Redemption, we must first recognize that he is to be loved simply for who he is. Loved for his own sake because he's lovely. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the law of God. 
The first and greatest commandment is that we love God with everything that we have at all times. But Jesus isn't finished answering the scribe, is he? Verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus here, a lot of people don't know this, he quotes from another Old Testament passage. Did you know the command to love your neighbor is in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18? It's always very funny to me whenever you see liberals who hate the whole rest of the book of Leviticus really like this verse. And it's just a chapter or two over from God's denunciation of all kinds of sexual perversions. Just a little thing to put in your back pocket next time that you're interacting with somebody. Hey, do you know the love command is actually in the Old Testament? And that's what Jesus is quoting from here. He goes on to give, if you notice, he says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives it, and then he says, and the second is, like th- the second is this. Jesus actually gives him more than he asked for, which I thank God for because that, I give you guys answers that are way longer than what you had wanted, and I have biblical warrant for it, right? So stop complaining and be quiet. Um, but Jesus does this. He gives the second commandment after giving the first because in his mind, to love God will always result in loving your neighbor. Or we could put it this way, and and God help us all with this, sincerely. We could put it this way. Loving God will always result in loving everything that is associated with God, and human beings are image bearers of God. Therefore, to love God results in loving your fellow man. These two commandments, though distinct, are nevertheless tied together in the mind of Christ. They are inseparably linked together. Here's what I mean. We can distinguish the commandments on paper, but in practice, they always come together. Just like we can distinguish regeneration and faith on paper, but they come together, you're alive and you believe. Right? We can distinguish them, but in practice, they always come together. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. If it's not. It's telling you to love your neighbor. It's assumed that you already love yourself. And you know, and God knows already, that you love and take care of yourself very well. Right? We make sure, to the best of our abilities, that our needs are met. We try to make life easy on ourselves, don't we? I've never met anyone that intentionally tries to make their life difficult. Some people inadvertently make their own lives more difficult, but they don't mean to. We are patient with ourselves. You may get frustrated at yourself, but it's like, ah, we'll figure it out later. Right? You're patient with yourself. Uh, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, right? Like, I, I knew what I meant when I said that, right? We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We're generally kind to ourselves. We forgive ourselves. We move on. You get the idea. You take care of yourself. We are selfish beings. And listen, that's not always bad in the sense that we take care of ourselves, and that's actually fitting that you would take care of yourself. But we're always thinking of ourselves, aren't we? What do I need? What do I want? Right? What about me? What are my goals? And then we try to meet and get those things for ourselves. We care for ourselves. And Jesus says that, that is how you love your neighbor. Like that. You, you, you take all that concern you have for yourself and you turn it outward towards other people. And remember, Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that our neighbor is anyone and everyone that we come in contact with, even our enemies. The Samaritans and the Jews didn't like each other. Even our enemies. The law of God is that we would care for and do good for others just like we would for ourselves. This is the golden rule, isn't it? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? The, the, the law is that we would desire, right? This is love your neighbor, you would desire from the heart good for others. That you would from the heart want what is best for your neighbor. And that we would not merely desire their good, right? Because everyone loves everyone until it's time to actually do something and show love, right? That's a, a funny thing to me. I love everyone. Will you help us with this person's home? No. Okay, great. Okay, so your love is just words. That's awesome. Right? No, it's not just... I hope that they do well and I want what's best for everyone. No, and then you try to act on that and do what you can to bring the good to pass. 
Notice the order here. Jesus says that we must love God first, and then we will love our neighbor. Again, the two are inseparable, and the one comes before the other on purpose. Remember the words of the Apostle John. You ready for a text that hurts really bad? 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. If you don't love your neighbor as you love yourself, you don't love God perfectly. You don't. Allow me real quick, I thought this was interesting. I want to take a leaf out of D.A. Carson's book. Some of you guys know him. He's a, a pretty good Calvinistic preacher. In a sermon he preached, he looked at the context of Leviticus 19, where Jesus is quoting from. And in that sermon, Carson pointed out that God shows us in that chapter some of the examples of what it looks like to love your neighbor. Verse 18 gives the summary. Let me, let me walk you through verses 10 through 18 really briefly. I won't read it. You, you can double-check me on this in your own time. Verse 10, Leviticus 18, says that we should care for the poor. Verse 11 says that we should not steal or lie. Verse 14 tells us that we must be fair in our business dealings and that we must care for those with physical disabilities. Verse 15 tells us that we must deal justly and honestly with all men. Verse 16 says that we must avoid slandering others and, and also that we not jeopardize the life of our neighbor. Verse 17 tells us that we are not to hate our brother and that we are to rebuke our neighbor when necessary for his and our good. Verse 18, the first part of it, says that we must not take revenge or carry a grudge in our hearts against others. And then the end of verse 18 summarizes it all by telling us, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourselves. I am the Lord. Why should, why should we love this way? I am the Lord. There's your answer. Because the Lord demands it, and he is our God. And if you love him, you will obey him. If you love me, you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's, that's God's reasoning here. Now, again, that's not an exhaustive list, but you get the idea. God tells us what it looks like. He gives us all kinds of examples in the scripture. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor. We are to be actively engaged in loving the people around us. We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And as with the first great commandment, were there any breaks or excuses in Jesus' words? Love your neighbor as you love yourself, except no. No, no excuses. All day, every day. At all times, period, we are to extend compassion, grace, help, and mercy to everyone around us, just like we want others to do for us. Now, some people, not thinking as deeply as we have on this this morning, tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. I've, I've met these people. They hear, love God and love your neighbor, and they think, that's not so bad, that's not so hard. Right, that, that, that's easy. I, I love God. Ask, ask people. Everyone in Scioto County is a Christian. I don't know if you knew that or not. Do you love God? Oh, absolutely. I love the Lord. He, may, he let me wake up today. I hear that all the time at Mule Town when I'm working the cash register. Hey, man, how you doing? God's been good to me. I'm awake. I'm like, then why are you fornicating? I don't say it in that moment, but hopefully we can have the conversation with Bubba later. Sorry, I just don't want to name names. But we, everyone, do you love the Lord? Oh, I love the Lord. He's been so good to me. Do you love other people? Yeah, I love other people. I, I'm not bad to anybody. I love everybody. We hear this. That's what we hear. I love God and I love people. Do you really? Are you so foolish as to think that you really keep these commandments the way that God says? I'm serious. Like, let's, let's, let's bring this down. Do you really love God the way that he says he wants you to love him? Perfectly at all times. And do you really love others the way that he says you should love them? Exactly like you love yourself at all times? I promise you don't. We can look at the Ten Commandments and see that you don't. You say, what do the Ten Commandments have to do with this? Jesus' two commandments are a summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments have to do with loving God. The, the commandments 5 through 10 have to do with loving your neighbor. Jesus is giving us a summary of a summary of God's moral law. 
Hear me. I just want to briefly walk through them. I'm not going to number them, but just hear me. You don't love God perfectly. You don't always put him first in all things always. You don't always worship God the way that he commands, both internally and externally. You don't always show God the proper reverence, respect, fear, and awe that he is due. You don't perfectly keep the Lord's day holy and look forward to it and delight in it. And you don't love your neighbor perfectly. You don't always respect legitimate authority. Let me say that again for those of us who are into politics in this room. You don't always respect legitimate authority. You hate people and harm them in different ways. You commit sexual sin against others in thought, word, or deed. You take from other people. You lie and gossip and slander and harm people with your words. And you desire to have what others have and aren't happy for those who are prospering. Hear me. Please hear me. If, if, if for one second you think, oh, I love God and I love people. Listen, you don't get to love God and your neighbor however your sinful flesh wants and then declare that you've kept God's law. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We must love God the way that he commands and we must love others the way that he commands. And not one of us have done it. Not one of us have loved God or neighbor like this for five minutes. And remember, God demands that we do this perfectly. It is the law. Does the law bend? He may have shown you mercy, but that's not what the law says. The law didn't bend. He Actually, he had to show you mercy because you broke the law. Right? But I sneezed and I hit the gas and it made me get... It doesn't matter. You broke the law. The law doesn't bend. These are the great commandments. This is what God requires of all men. And yet not one of us do what God requires. Let me read you some texts on this. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Not one. 1 Kings 8.46 For there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 143 verse 2 Enter not into judgment with your servant. Why doesn't the psalmist want God to judge him? For no one living is righteous before you. Or as Paul says in the famous text, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the law, and it's unyielding, and it's unchanging, and it's uncompromising. God demands what God demands, and we have not done it. Not one of us have kept the law. Let, let, let's, let's ride this point out. Every one of us have been disobedient to the standard that God has set. Every one of us is guilty of sinning against both God and man. Every one of us, hear me, if you, if you can go through the Ten Commandments and you think that you've not broken one of them in some way, you're foolish. You're foolish. In some way, whether thought, word, or deed, you've broken them all. And every one of us deserves the wrath of God in hell for this. We have sinned against the beautiful, against the king of the universe. I've committed the worst crime. You've committed the worst crime. And so we deserve the worst con condemnation in an eternal hell under the wrath of the God that we've sinned against. Do you see what the law has done? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Could you feel the air coming out of the room? Oh, I have to do this? Right? It sounds like a happy sermon. Love God and love your neighbor. No. Do you see what the law has done? It's exposed us. It's exposed us for what we are. Hear me. To paraphrase Paul in Romans 7, the law is holy and good and it's righteous. It shows us what we should be. And we, are, uh, we, we agree. Right? We are forced to confess those laws are good and that's what I should be. But it shows that we're sinners. Hear me, you want to hear one of the most chilling words of our Lord Jesus? I was talking to Stephen about this on Friday. This is terrifying. Talking about the law, in Luke chapter 10, verse 28, a scribe had just given Jesus the proper answer. Jesus says, what do you think the greatest commandment is? And he says, love God and love your neighbor. And then in response, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You talk about the most terrifying words of Christ? Do that and you'll live. What did he just do? Jesus just uttered the covenant of works to this man. 
The same covenant God made with Adam. Obey me and live. What would that imply? You disobey me and you die. And that means that if we don't do the law, if we don't keep the law, do this and live means we will die in this life and suffer the second death in the life to come. And as I've already labored to show you, we have not done it. It's actually funny, that man in Luke chapter 10, if he would have had a functioning brain cell in his head, when Jesus said, do this and live, he would have said, but what if I haven't? But no, the text says, in seeking to justify himself, he says, and who is my neighbor? Which means that that fool thought that he had kept the first of the two commandments. I hope everyone in this room sees that we need a savior. Oh, I hope you see it. Hear me. We don't need more law. Ten is enough, isn't it? Ten's enough for me. Two is enough for me. We don't need more law. We don't need more chances. And we don't need to try harder. We need a savior. I need a savior. And you need a savior. The law exposes us and shows us that we need a righteousness. We need a law keeping that is outside of ourselves because we can't do it. The law drives us to look up to God and cry out for him to send us a savior who can take away our sins and make us righteous even though we've sinned. And God in his grace has given us such a savior. He's given us the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given us Jesus who in perfect obedience, or rather who lived in perfect obedience to the law of God, Jesus, who has perfectly kept the law, who loved God and loved neighbor perfectly. He has given us Jesus, who after keeping the law, rendered himself as a sacrifice for sin on a cross. And consider this, in doing so, displayed again the greatest love to both God and man. Love to God, and that God would be glorified in the salvation of sinners. And love for men, and that men would be saved through his, through his cross. Even in his death, he loves God and loves men perfectly. God has given us Jesus, who at the cross took our sins upon his shoulders and suffered the penalty of damnation and death that we deserve for our sins. Jesus, whom God raised from the dead on the third day in order to demonstrate that our sins have been forgiven and that by faith in Christ we will be counted righteous in God's sight. God has given us a Savior from the curse of the law. The law says, do this and live. And it curses us because we haven't done it. But God has given us his only son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from the curse of the law. The law drives us to Christ. And that's because the law shows us our sin. J.C. Ryle, great Anglican theologian and commentator, said this. It is only gross ignorance of the requirements of God's law which makes people undervalue the gospel. The man who has the clearest view of the moral law will always be the man who has the highest sense of the value of Christ's atoning blood. You show me someone that doesn't value Jesus, I'll show you a man who doesn't understand what God demands of him. You show me a man who thinks he can save himself, I'll show you a man who doesn't understand what God demands of him. Everyone who understands these two commandments ought to understand how precious that the Lord Jesus Christ is. Everyone who sees what they are when they look in the mirror of the law ought to throw themselves upon Christ in faith and seek mercy from God in him. And the beauty of it all, the beautiful thing that I get to declare to each one of us today is that God promises to cleanse and make new every single person who looks to this Jesus. I hope that you don't think this is just for the people who are out there. You need to hear this every day. And so do I. Why? Because we break the law every day. I was talking to Bob Knox about this over lunch. When the law drives us to Christ and we come to Christ and we're justified. And then we say, Jesus, I love you. I want to obey you. I, I delight in you. What do you want me to do? And he walks us back to the law. And he says, obey the law. That's what I want you to do in gratitude. Honor me by obeying me. And then every day we screw up and we sin and we say, what do I do? I have to run back to Christ. 
every day because I fail daily. We need this. Him will be forgiven of their law-breaking. We need a Savior, and God has given us one in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear me. Love God and love your neighbor is not the gospel. There was a, there was a sign in, in Portsmouth. It was that Portsmouth welcoming community, the liberal gay-affirming Mormons. It's a very strange uh, pot of heresy. And they had a sign, and it said, Yep, it's just that simple. Love God and love your neighbor. And I thought, yeah, it is that simple. And it's just that damning as well. Love God and love your neighbor is a simple commandment. And it is an impossible one for sinners to keep. It is not the gospel. It is the law. It's not good news, is it? God demands that you love God and love your neighbor. That's not good news. That's the law, and it curses us. But the good news is that God in Christ has done what the law could not do. God has accomplished salvation for all who trust in the Lord Jesus. And now we come to the scribe's response. We're not done yet. Don't worry. It won't be much longer. Verse 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe understands what Jesus has said and he gets it. He agrees with Jesus. And he sees that the law of love, the commandment to love God and neighbor, is more important than any ceremonial or sacrificial law, even a whole burnt offering. That, that, that the, the one offering, it doesn't get to eat any piece of it. The whole thing belongs to God. Loving God and loving your neighbor is more important than even those very holy sacrifices. He understands that true religion is to love God and love others. And that apart from that, all the externals and formalities of religion are worthless. This scribe understood what the Old Testament taught. I'll give you one verse, Proverbs 21.3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. He understood that. The scribe sees what God truly requires of all men, moral perfection. Brief note here, we need to remember this as well. I need to remember this as well. Externals are empty without true love for God and others. Hear me. I love our liturgy. I love our external forms of worship and the reverence and the hymns and the fact that we sing psalms. And I don't think anyone else around here sings the psalms. Thank you, Nick. Right? And, and that all can be right and proper and good. And they are. We believe in the regulative principle of worship. But it's nothing without sincere love for God. Scribe got it. We need to get it too. But again, the scribe understood the requirements of the law. But being a Pharisee, this man was no doubt self-righteous and believed that he had kept the law. Right? He, he did not yet see his need for a Savior. He did not yet see his need for the Lord Jesus. He didn't see a need for a righteousness that he did not possess. And so we read in verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far. Briefly, the kingdom of God is the rule of God being one of his people that is a citizen of the kingdom, and it culminates in eternal life with God. It's being under the rule of God now that culminates in eternal life with God. And Jesus says that this man has not yet entered into the kingdom. He's close, but he's not there yet. He's not far from the kingdom. And we always say, oh man, like that's super positive. And to some degree that is, because some people are further from the kingdom than others. But nevertheless, the man is not yet in the kingdom. And this teaches us something about Jesus first really briefly. He's the king of the kingdom. And if you're going to come into the kingdom, it's on his terms because he determines who's in and who's out. He's not a mere rabbi. <laughs> He's a king. You want in his kingdom, you come in on his terms because he determines who's in and who's out. But notice that the king ties the knowledge of God's law with being close to the kingdom. And, and this just reinforces something that I've said already. God's Law, knowing God's law is first required in order to join the kingdom. You must first know the demands of the law. That's step one. Why is that step one? Well, because as I've already said, only when you know the law will you see your sin and your need for faith in the king of the kingdom, Jesus. 
the law prepares the way for the gospel. I hope you all know this. This is why we preach the law whenever we evangelize people. Brothers and sisters, without the law, there is no gospel. Where there is no knowledge of your sin and the wrath of God that stands against you for your lawlessness, there's no good news for you. You've heard this illustration before. Where there is no diagnosis of cancer, there is no cure necessary in the mind of the sick. The law must first tell you that you're damned before you'll look for salvation in Christ. The law comes first. But again, don't forget this. The law is not the gospel. Knowing God's commandments is not enough to save you. You must believe the gospel. You must come to Christ in faith to be saved. You must believe on him if you're to enter the kingdom. You have to know the law first, but you can't stop there. You must stop trying to justify yourself by your own obedience. You must put away your pride, and you must submit to Christ and the gospel in faith. Mark this well. To be one inch outside of the kingdom of God is to be entirely in hell. You know the old redneck saying, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. You must come in by faith. Close is not close enough. Now, we don't know how things ended for this scribe. The Bible is completely silent on whether or not he ever came into the kingdom. But we do know this for each one of us. Apart from faith in Christ, no matter how much you know, you will always be outside of the kingdom and under the wrath of God. You may not be too far from the kingdom, but close is not close enough. Listen, I, I, I don't question. I said, I said this a bunch of times because a lot of these passages in Mark are evangelistic. I'm not doubting anyone's profession of faith, but I don't know your hearts. So listen. Almost in the kingdom is not good enough. Almost Christian is not good enough. Almost repenting is not good enough. Almost believing is not good enough. Having been, having been in church your whole life is not good enough. Knowing the Bible is not good enough. You must know Christ. And you must know him by faith. Please hear me, especially uh, for those of us who are self-consciously reformed. Being able to pass a theology exam won't save you. you will not be saved by your understanding of the scriptures. You won't be saved by your understanding of the law. You won't be saved by your own obedience. You will only ever be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He must save you. It's not even your faith that saves you. Faith is the instrument that God grants you that connects you to Jesus who saves you. It's only him. Please hear me, many intelligent men, even theologians and ministers, God help us. Many intelligent men, even theologians and ministers have died outside the kingdom. And they did so because for all of their learning, they never truly came to faith in Christ. They knew, but they did not throw themselves upon the mercy of God in Christ. They could quote the scriptures, but they never came to believe savingly in the gospel declared in the scriptures. If you're here and you're unconverted, be warned. Be warned. You must know Christ. Look to him in faith and live. So as we come now to the end of our time in this text, I must ask, are you in the kingdom or are you just close to it? I won't, I won't belabor the point. I've done that enough. But know this. The Lord Jesus Christ beckons you to come in. He's not a king on his throne in the heart of the city saying, well, come in. No, he's standing at the gate saying, come. And faith is the key that will swing wide the gate. He's standing at the gate beckoning you, come in now. And to those of us who are already in the kingdom, let me ask you this. Are you walking in these two great commandments? Am I? Are you obeying with an evangelical obedience? That is, are you obeying because you've been saved? Listen, we don't earn our salvation. That is heresy. We, but we obey because we have been saved. That's evangelical obedience. That's gospel obedience. Brothers and sisters, though we are not saved by law-keeping, nevertheless, it is our duty to keep the law. Love God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Is it not also our delight? I want to. Because he has been so good to me. Love for him. God has put love in our hearts. Love for him and love for others. All coming from where? His great love for us. Given to us through Christ and the gospel. In closing, this text instructs the Christian in God's law and also calls the unbeliever to faith in Christ. So may God have mercy and work both faith and love in each one of our hearts today. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that cuts like a knife that you would grip their heart with this text and let them know being close to the kingdom is not good enough. And may you cause them, by your sovereign grace, cause them to come into the kingdom through faith in Christ. Have mercy. And God, for us who are Christians, I pray, please, that you would help us in delight to fulfill our duty to each day strive earnestly to keep your commandments. God, help us to actually love you, to not just know true things about you, but to actually love you. God, how, how different we might be inwardly and outwardly if we were truly gripped with a desire for you. And all of us are. Everyone who's been born again is to some degree truly loving you. But God, we, we want to love you more. We're not satisfied with how much we love you. Cause us to love you more, and in doing so, cause us to love others, to not merely externally do good for others, but actually want good for others. Help us, Lord. Help us to be the kind of people that you want us to be. Help us to be like our Lord Jesus. Have mercy on us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.